History, Lecture 74, Rabbi Blyweiss. This is, uh, you find yourself now in the period that's called the Savoraim, sometime in the, um, in the 400s, 500s, 600s. And uh, actually, to be more precise, we're going we're gonna to put this back in the um, 6th century, in the 500s, where we find our part of the world, the Middle East, we call it today, um, the present rulers are, the, are still the Byzantines. Um, Byzantines are still the, the go-to empire in the area of Judea and Eretz Israel. Further east, we still find the Sassanids, the Chavarim, uh, otherwise called the Persians. And um, in the early, that's, that's, that's where that's the background. The, at one point, in the early part of the 6th century, in the early 500s, so the Bible has been sealed, excuse me, the Bavli has been sealed, uh, the Jews are enduring persecution, and um, the Persians try to conquer the uh, western part of, uh, of, of the west of their territory, which means partly Eretz Israel and other lands as well. Um, the Persians come through, they, we know that they persecute Jews, um, we know, for example, there's a figure, the Reish Galusa, the political figurehead, is named Marzutra. He's the second Marzutra, and they crucify him and they um, hang his body on the bridge of Machoza for all to see. So this is the situation back in Bovel, one of one of immense persecution. Um, the same day that Marzutra the second is crucified and hung, hanged on the bridge in Machoza, his son is born. He, he will be the third Marsutra, and um, he is taken back to Tiveria. And I mentioned it briefly, they, with the third Marsutra, there's an attempt to um, uh, coronate him as the new, what he's called the Reish Pirka, which is not exactly the Nasi. He doesn't descend from Hillel, but he is from the Davidic line. He, is, he, is, uh, he, he, does, he does certainly have that Reish Galusa um, uh, messianic aspect to him, and he will begin a new mini dynasty of future. I mean, they're not exactly the same, but that's that's the idea. Um, they're not the figurehead. The race Galusa in Bavo, he was that, and they they came from the Davidic line. And we're going to tell a very significant story about this struggle over the race Galusa position. Um, so Bavo is definitely the center, but there is this phenomenon back in little remote fringe Tiveria, uh, led by Marzutra III and his descendants on the last several generations of this Reish Pirka. Uh, it's, a it's, it's a historical footnote. Now, the um, Jews will eventually come to support these Persians. Even though, as nasty as the Persians are, they represent a possible change in the status quo, which is always welcome when things are terrible, whatever can turn the situation around. They know back in Eretz Israel, back the Byzantines, the Christians are certainly no friends of theirs and wouldn't permit the, uh, the return of the Jewish people or a, um, certainly a rebuilding of the base of Mikdash. The uh, Justinian is, Justinian I is the emperor of Byz Byzantium and in 532 he retaliates and crushes the Persians Persians are a successful period, but then he turns around and crushes the Persians. And unfortunately, this Justinian is a devout Christian, which is uh, never good for us. 
We like it. I mean, not that they don't listen. Not that they listen to us necessarily, but we prefer the state of affairs to be when the non, when the Jews are really from, and the non-Jews are not particularly from whatever religion they are practicing. It usually goes well with us. Kaddish Baruch Hu gives us bracha and tzlocha, and uh, and the non-Jews don't persecute us. It's usually terrible in the inverse when the Jews are not so from. So we don't have the same hashgacha, we don't have the same support from the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and the non-Jews, the devout ones, uh, be careful of a religious person, the self-righteousness of the religious mentality. When they're not Jewish, uh, that usually does not work well for us. And Justinian was definitely not, not our friend. Um, he will take vengeance against the Jews. He understood that they were his enemies. They had allied themselves with the Persians. And um, there are several massacres that he commits. Uh, and... He produces his own version, his own set of laws. If you remember yesterday, we talked about the Theodosian Code, several anti-Jewish decrees from this, um, from the Emperor Theodosian, uh, Theodosius, who was uh, part of the Christian Empire uh, of Byzantium. Now Justinian has his own code. It goes into effect. He rules from 527 to 565, and among his rulings, all shuls are to be converted to churches. He forces the Jews to uh, push off observing Pesach. He, in, he insists that they celebrate when it coincides with the Christian Easter observance. He requires, he, he forbids reading the Torah in Lashon HaKodesh in Hebrew. Instead, they're forced, if they're going to read it at all, they have to translate it into the local language. He figures that if they're going to do that, they're going to stop learning the Torah. And he forbids learning Mishnah. Understood Mishnah to be the, the uh, foundational starting point of all learning, and the Jews are no longer allowed to learn it. Now, these are the laws, and we said this yesterday too by the Theodosian Code. We Jews are, are, are a notoriously resourceful bunch, so we got around them. And Justinian is not very good at enforcing the laws, but the very fact that they're on the books means that if Jews are to be Jewish, they have to do so in a clandestine way. It's not going to be easy, and there's going to be persecution and arrests. And, uh, and repercussions when they're caught. Um, we also know the other significant point, Justinian builds a church called the Nea Church um, in Yushalayim itself, and there are remnants that still exist. You can see them as you're walking. Can you picture the Jewish quarter? Have you walked on the walls around the city by any chance, around the Armenian Jewish quarters? If you do, after you cross the portion that goes over what's called Shartzion, um, Zion Gate, and you get near the parking lot, near the Sephardi Center, can you picture that? Um, right near the walls, between the walls and the parking lot, are, is actually there's a, there's, a, there's a sports, there's a basketball court, and a soccer field uh, that, that the, local, uh, the, the local youth use in the old city, but um, they're built on the ruins of the Nea Church of Justinian. You can still see till today. Uh, even the wicked people have memorials, eternal memorials in the in the old city. Uh, yeah, this is not a place that's important, but it's it's certainly there, and people people recognize it and see it as a landmark. So, um, yeah, that's that's Justinian. Go ahead, Aaron. Uh, Aramaic was still a, was still the dominant language in Bavel, certainly, and they had different dialects in, in Eretz Israel. Yeah. 
Oh, sure, and were crafty. They could. They also read the original Hebrew, too, when nobody was looking. You know, they kept sandwiching it in and combining it with other tefillahs. But, okay, the fact that the laws are in the books means that we have to be crafty in the first place. You're not allowed to just learn in a free way. This is the situation under the Christian rulers. Um, now, there is a period where the yeshiva of Sura is destroyed, and then later on, Pumbadisa gets destroyed. Get used to this reality. Meaning, there, after the Talmudic time, there's, there's very little that, uh, that's stable in the Jewish world. Constant shifting, constant moving. It's true, Bubble is still our center. And when they leave Sura, so they go to Pumbadisa. When they leave Pumbadisa, they go to Machosa. And when they're in Machosa, they go to Matamasya. So uh, they, they shifted around, but you realize that what, what, what the toll that that takes on a people who have to move around, who, who, are, who are periodically massacred, that is the state of affairs. The leading Savarayim are set adrift until they found new yeshivas, and later on they come back, they return, they rebuild, but the new buildings are not always, they're always sometimes a shadow of what they were before. This is, this is now the new period, certainly under Savarayim, not, not the happiest times. It'll get better during the Gaonic period, as we'll see. The um, Shomronim, just to keep tabs on the different elements around the world, the Shomronim still exist. Remember, at this point, they're not Jewish. They are worse than non-Jews. Um, there were several, they will rebel against their rulers, against their oppressors, in 485, and again in 529, and again in 556. Uh, each time they fail, and each time they fail, their numbers are reduced. At one point, they claim to number in the millions. We mentioned today there are 700 and, uh, well, I didn't check the obituaries, 39, let's say, uh, <coughs> in, in Eretz Israel, to our knowledge. The, um, their numbers are going to steadily diminish. Now, the background to the Muslim Revolution. By the 7th century, okay, having, having endured all these hardships under Justinian, by the 7th century, the 600s, and I mentioned, Aaron, Aaron you were with us yesterday, I mentioned that we're going to fly, now, we're, we're already flying. Um, in these years, the, sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages, there are a few important points but altogether, they don't take up a lot of space, so we're going to suddenly find ourselves in the time of the Rishonim. Um, but here are, here are the important aspects, the important uh, uh, details of this period. By the 7th century, the Byzantine Empire is in trouble. Not fatally so, I keep saying this, they're going to they're be around for another seven, 800 years, but in this particular time, it's a low point. They have, they're suffering plagues, there are earthquakes, there are wars, their internal problems. Um, there are there, there's the people themselves are fractious. They're fighting among themselves. There is a conflict between people who live in the mountains, who are more elitist, influenced still by Hellenist cultures. So if you picture that mentality, a more intellectual, cultural, uh, wealthier group who live on the top of the mountain, and then there are people who are considered the village villagers, who are um, who are of a different dimension, uh, monophysite, a different kind. They're, they're, they practice Christianity, but they're different views of Christianity. And the conflicts between these different people become so extreme, the villagers are in the majority, but when the Muslims come, there's almost no resistance, and the villagers embrace them. So the Muslim conquest will eventually, I'm going to back up and talk about the Muslims in a moment, but I want to paint the backdrop and give you a sense of what's going on in the world. Again, in the West you've got Byzantium, in the East you've got the Sassanids. 
They're both weakened by centuries of fighting uh, and by internal problems and all these other, other afflictions. So when the Muslims will sweep through the world and conquer it, it's as if the world itself was laying open and ready to embrace them. Uh, it wasn't very difficult. Sometimes timing is everything in life. And that's what the, that's what the early Muslim uh, warriors encountered when they, when, they, when they set out in the world and why the world fell into their hands with relative, I mean, I don't want to overstate it either. There were, there were wars, but um, com comparative to, com comparable to other, play, other times in history, it was pretty smooth. Now, a couple, another, couple of their important dates. In, 16, in 614, the Persians finally conquered Jerusalem. Remember, there's this ongoing, on and off Persian-Byzantine struggle, and the Persians had their sights on Jerusalem, and they conquered Jerusalem together with other parts of the empire. They're on their way to Egypt, of course, along the way, they massacre Christians from the Byzantine Empire. Again, the Jews are on their sides. It's not like either power is friendly to the Jews, but the Jews thought maybe if the Persians can overtake uh, the land of Israel, that they could get, they could come back too. The Jews, of course, always looking towards Geula. Um, there is a very brief revival of a Jewish community in Jerusalem. So that, for that alone, it's a significant point to mention uh, in, in in around in the six teens. The 615-16. Um, by 629, it's a very short-lived revolution. The Byz Byz uh, Byzantium uh, comes back and, and uh, responds and takes vengeance. They retake Eretz Israel, And that lasts not even a decade. That lasts till about 638. And with all of this infighting and back and forth, as I said, the empire is exceedingly weak and vulnerable to conquest. Enter Muhammad. Well, uh, we'll talk about him too briefly if you want. I, this is a briefer version I can do. If you're interested in the history of Islam from a Jewish perspective, I do that topic too more elaborately. I did a bit of it earlier this year. Uh, that was not comprehensive. My tape online is more comprehensive if, if it's of interest to you. But here are the, I think, important points that we have to know for history. The Gemara Kedushim tells us Ten measures of znus fell to the world, znus being immodesty. Ten measures fell to the world. Nine of them, nine of those measures fell to Arabia. I guess that's Saudi Arabia or the Arab culture, which is known for licentiousness, znus, according to Chazal. In that of immodest behavior. Fell to Arabs. That's how the Gemara. Islam does. The culture and the culture that predates Islam, the Arab culture, um, let's, let's, let's at least clarify one thing. Um, not all Arabs are Muslim and not all Muslims are Arab. In fact, there are large numbers who are of exceptions to both of those statements. Um, so the fact that Islam, which we'll see, is, draws heavily from Torah and Judaism and therefore will, will celebrate, sanctify uh, human intimacy. Um, Okay, that's coming in one direction. The fact that you know initially the Arab peoples were immersed in znus, according to the Chazal, okay, that's not a contradiction. Now, Muhammad is born, we're not quite sure when. Let's say, for argument's sake, it's about 570. He's born in Mecca, in what we call today Saudi Arabia, on the, on the Arabian Peninsula, to a wealthy, important clan in these days most things were most people were part of parts of tribes 
That's certainly true in Arab cultures. It doesn't matter which country you're from. It matters more which tribe you're from, which family affiliation you have. His affiliation was Quraysh. That's a name that's going to be important, as I'll discuss in a moment. He's from the Quraysh tribe, which is the most prestigious in Mecca. He was, his, um, he was orphaned. He's raised by his grandfather and his uncle. He became a trader, trading things, not traitor, trader. Uh, his first wife is a wealthy woman, a widow herself. And she marries him seeing that he was a dynamic individual, charismatic figure. Anything interesting that I'm missing? Not so much. Uh, a, uh, a dramatic, he, she, he was a compelling figure, so she married him, but she made a condition. She said, I'll marry you. And it's, I guess, nice to marry into money so she could make a condition. She said, I'll marry you. You can't take any other, wife, any, any other wives. Of course, that was the culture, to have multiple wives, but he agreed. He would not have any other wife. And that would be... Um, historically, the first of many, many promises that Muhammad would break. Uh, he would have many wives. But uh, that's a significant point, too. The, 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 their great prophet was historically, by their own account, a liar. The, um, he also became her business agent. He was, he was uh, an industrious person. As we said, he traded. Uh, he clearly traveled the world because he was uh, he was he knew things. He was he had lot, he must have had lots of exposure to Torah Jews and their great texts of the Torah and the Talmud. In the year six ten, he was forty years old approximately. He goes up to Mount Chira'a in Mecca, and ha experiences his great prophetic revelation, where Allah speaks to him and gives him his message, his life message, to spread the word that Allah is one. He comes down and tries to spread the message, and he does not find a receptive audience. His family especially is aghast. They're pagan, everybody's pagan. They worshipped, among other things, the Kaaba stone, the same stone that the Muslims will later on purify from idolatry and, and incorporate it to their own religious practice. But at the time, they worship the Kaaba stone, and they do not like this new uh, Muhammad who's coming back with all kinds of visions and messages about one God. And uh, they worry what it means to their city's future as a pagan worship center. It was a business capital in the world. It's well-situated. As a, trade, as a point of trade and commerce uh, between different continents, between Africa and Asia, and then Europeans came down as well, and they enjoyed that, and they didn't want, they didn't know what this monotheism was, gonna, was going to turn into, so they exile their clansman, Muhammad, in the year 622, and that year is a turning point. Yeah. Yeah, I also heard uh, one reason why the Kabbalistan, why it was such a big marketplace, and they had to trade it because the Arabs had a tendency to fight and kill each other. Mm -hmm. And so because everybody saw it as a holy site, it was one of the only places where they weren't allowed to fight. So uh, okay, maybe true. It, what is uh, very sad even till today is when people go down for the Hajj, the, uh, the, festival, the festival of the Hajj, um, it, it happens periodically, not every year quite the same, but uh, it happens frequently that people are trampled to death. In their, in their religious zeal and going down and being part of the uh, procedures, uh, sometimes people don't pay attention to the individual and the value, the, the importance of human life 
Um, Mohammed now is is, is 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 exiled. He's adrift. In 622, he goes north on the Arabian on the Arabian Peninsula to the city of Medina, which after Mecca is the second holiest place in Islam. The experience is referred to by Muslims as the Hijra because it's here in Medina that he finally finds a following and assumes the mantle as a religious authority. Finally, his message finds an audience. Now, initially, up until this point, Muhammad and whatever students he was able to influence, um, their practices are incredibly parallel to Jewish practice, uh, to Torah ideas. When they pray, they face Yerushalayim Ir HaKodesh. They fasted on the 10th day of the first month. Uh, originally, Muslims kept kashus according to the laws, the halachos of, 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 of the Talmud. They kept Shabbos on Shabbos. And everything changes with the Chidra. In six, Well, we'll see. Well, as opposed to Shabbos being Jamia on Friday. Is that their thing? It is, as we'll see in a moment. The year is now 622. That's, by the way, their lunar calendar system begins this year in 622. That's their year zero, because everything begins for Muhammad at that point. His message finally finally uh, takes root. Um, while he's in Medina, he encounters three Jewish tribes, because the culture is a, clan, is a clannish culture. Tribes? Tribes, because... I mentioned a couple minutes ago, the Muslim cultures worked in tribes. If you were not part of it, ex- tribes being extended family sis- units. Not if you're not unit. part of that tribe, part of an extended no. family unit, you're lost. You have no rooting and you're, uh, among other things, probably going to be murdered. Nobody is there to protect you. So three Jewish tribes live in Medina, and Muhammad sees in them what he assumes are natural allies. Oh good, other monotheists, They'll help me spread my word. And having clearly known a lot of Jews and interacted with Jews and ripped them off, I mean, uh, I mean, actually taken their ideas and incorporated them into the Quran, his teachings, um, clearly he had an affinity for the Jewish people. And um, he explained his message. Allah is one and he wants me to teach and I'm his last prophet. And the Jews hear it and they hear about various episodes including how Ibrahim, Ibrahim, don't you know, went up to the mountain and brought his son, his one son who he loved, as, as Allah himself told him to do, up as a potential sacrifice. And that son, of course, was Ismail, not Yitzchak, Ishmael, as they tell it. And other such distortions, as it was brought down by Muhammad in the Quran, clearly with the knowledge of Jewish text, but distorted in their own image. And the families hear it, and they are not a recept- they're not receptive. They said, uh, Muhammad, thanks, nice try, you know, don't call us. Uh, we'll call you and don't expect it. And he is offended. And this is a turning point. He says, I don't need you anymore. I'm going to amass my own following. And um, Jews now, from this point, have a different role in the, in the, in the scheme of Islam. Um, specifically, several Muslim cult- um, historical observances um, will now change. And you can see it's a direct backlash. No longer from this point will they face Yerushalayim. Now Mecca becomes Yerushalayim for the Muslims. 
Mecca being Muhammad's birthplace and later on his death place. And so Mecca becomes the holy city and that's where they face. Um, they pray now, well, Jews pray three times a day, oh yeah. Uh, Muslims five times a day, it's a shorter prayer, but that's, that's a, a self-conscious change. Uh, the Sabbath, as we said, falls on Friday, not Shabbos, and many other changes. Two of the Jewish tribes, Muhammad has expelled from Medina. And the third, Muhammad slaughters all of the males of the third Jewish tribe. Uh, Muhammad, we find from the get-go, is, uh, is a violent individual. And the religion is born in violence. Um, one associates today the Muslim world and Muslim religion with, uh, with violence, understandably, because of the events in the last, especially half a century. But that was not always the case. Uh, the early phases, the early dynasties of Muslim rulers um, weren't quite what we think of when we think of Muslim fanaticism. There wasn't necessarily the same fanatic extremism. Um, if you look at, at one argument that I'm going to be trying to make to you in, in history is that actually the fanatic ex uh, religious zealots were much more Christian in the ancient world. Um, and only in the modern days do we find that aspect um, widespread in Islam. But it has its roots, and Muhammad himself is certainly a, certainly a role model for them in this, in, this, in this area. He was a vicious individual, clearly. Um, the Jews, in general, in Islam, are referred to as Ahal ul Khutab, which, well, I don't need to translate for that. Do we need me to translate that for you? Oh, just in case. Uh, so the translation is People of the Book. I'll take that name. Because that's true. They recognize they were the people who learned. In Islam, one of the distinctions between Islam and Judaism is the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, that every Jewish man has an obligation to constantly be learning and not playing with his video games, is a, um, is a constant, is a mitzvah. Oh, uh, hi. The, um, is, a, uh, is a mitzvah that devolves on every man. That, that parallel does not exist in Islam. Even though Islam has a very strong intellectual base and uh, the elites who study are certainly very sophisticated, um, it'd be a mistake to write them off as, as, as illiterate. That's not, that's not accurate. There's clearly a very strong, the, the um, sharia, the, the, very, the whole underpinning of the, of the religion is, is, is strongly based intellectually. But as a system, this is an obligation to tell the Torah that people out there can sit culturally and, and let's say with their... Um, Nargila and, and, and their various substances that they feed the Nargila, which are um, sometimes Lashish and sometimes others, um, they, they don't have to sit and learn. So with that, they're not necessarily the people of the book, but the Jews, we all, we all have to learn. Smart, less smart, doesn't matter. Um, the Jews are also Dima, which means second-class citizens, um, like the Christians. That means we're subject to, we have to pay a certain tax called the Jizya, uh, wherever we live in Muslim societies. How do they look at Judaism? Do you remember we talked about this with regards to Christianity? The Christians saw themselves as the new Jews, superseding the notion of supersessionism. Um, the, the, the whole span of history was the Jews were God's chosen people, and that lasts until Yashka comes and saves the world, at which point history follows the Christians. And they now have superseded the Jews, and the Jews are now guys that despise, rejected people. Remember this insight? Well, the Muslims effectively do the same thing with the Jews and the Christians. They say, yeah, yeah, that's all good. Musa 
was a Nabi. Moses was a prophet. Oh, yeah. Isa was a Nabi. Jesus was a prophet. But, from a Muslim perspective, flawed individuals, Tanakh is holy, the Bible's a holy book, but also flawed. Only from their perspective, Muhammad is a reliable prophet, and he's only Muhammad is the definitive prophet, and only the Quran is, uh, is, is true, is, is a true book that you can utterly rely on. If there's a contradiction, as there are many, between the Quran and the Tanakh, well, obviously that's because the Tanakh was defective from their perspective, and it took Muhammad to finally clean it up and get rid of the, the mistakes and the distortions and, and finally come out with the definitive Quran. There are a lot of laws, and they take them very seriously. And um, I'm going to give you some of the highlights. This is a clearly an abbreviated class of the relevant things we need to know for we need to know for history. Um, one of the one of the complexities is that there's not one uniform law. There are, among other things, there are um, two major groups of Muslims and a few minorities as well. The largest by far in the world today, some 80%, although the, the numbers are debated, but let's say about 80% of world Muslims today are Sunni, uh, in contrast with Shia, the Shiites, uh, which make up maybe 10%, 15% of the world Muslims, but they have different takes on these things. Uh, interestingly, they both have their, uh, they both emerge with immense violence. The Shia are the, are the inventors of the concept of jihad, of jihad, which doesn't only mean holy war, it means potentially dying for service to Allah, but um, that's, a, that's a Shia concept, but the Sunni today, with religious fundamentalism as it is, are receptive to it. And so they, they, they don't actually have the idea as their own idea of jihad per se, but they implement it practically in terms of, in terms of their... Uh, um, this is for my Shia on Islam, which I'm not going to get into, because I, I, um, the Sunni have five major principles of law, the Shia are ten. Um, there's a lot more in common than they have distinct, distinguished them, but when you get down to the level, like you're asking before, about individual laws and practices, I'm only pointing out that they, that they, dif they differ. Certainly the Quran and Muhammad are, are celebrated figures, and um, the idea of desecrating them, they certainly get this from Torah, desecrating Akadosh Baruch's name. I just mentioned in, in, um, in Gemara class this morning, the idea that if we hear Birkas Hashem, if we hear somebody using Hashem's name in a blasphemous way, um, the halacha is theoretically, it depends which, under who's saying it and under what circumstances, but theoretically, one of our reactions, we have to tear Kriya, we have to tear the clothes we're wearing. So they have a similar concept, and that's what leads them to doing, I mean, the modern religious fanatic uh, iteration that we see in our day of, of Islam, it leads them to going into French um, uh, cartoon or magazine magazine headquarters and murdering people who, 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 who desecrate what their idea of Muhammad is. Right. if the Muslims aren't allowed to like destroy the Quran or whatever, um, why doesn't every soldier and every army and every tank have one in them? Let me get back to my narrative. Because we're, no, I won't be here forever. I, it's, it's really interesting, all of this, no? We can talk about this. As I said, I refer you to these other, you don't have to learn just by me. There are other people who speak about this topic too, but if, if you're into this, so go look, go, go, go uh, get, my, get my shirim on, on this subject. Back to our discussion. Daniel, had something clarifying? No, weiter, 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 weiter. Okay. Uh, right. The, um, 
<coughs> so only the Quran, only Muhammad are seen as definitive. Um, in, how do the Jews appear in the Quran? They don't appear so much, but we find them, for example, in one in one surah, which is a chapter of the of the Quran. Muhammad shakes the hand of a Jew, and then meets up with the angel Jibril. Gabriel. Jibril won't touch Muhammad, he explains, because he's been defiled by the Jew. So it's not the most favorable depiction. He was a bad Jew. Yeah. Now, the Quran, you've heard me describe before. This is my own personal definition. I'm sure it's not accurate, but it's colorful. Uh, Take a food processor and put in equal parts Tanakh, Talmud, Medrash, together with a uh, lot of Arabian pagan sources, folklore, uh, add a dose of New Testament because they also they also somehow work in some of uh, Yashka's teachings. Um, and then I always say put a banana in because that always makes smoothies taste better. And you'd hit the high button and um, you'd come out with something that looks like the Quran, which is an impossible book to a beginner. It's not written in any order that makes any sense. It's written from longest to shortest chapter. Uh, so it doesn't tell a, a consecutive narrative or any or, or or even a string of ideas. But of course, if you're expert in any book, you make sense of it, and they're expert in it. So they, they certainly certainly they understand it, and it takes on a kedusha. Uh, and what we can say about Islam is of the various world religions, um, Hinduism, Buddhism that exists today, at least all the various denominations of Christianity, uh, Reform Judaism, Christ, uh, Conservative Judaism, all the other religions, Islam is by far closest to real Judaism. Much closer to, than, as I said before, to Reform, Reconstructionist, Conservative, which are variations on Presbyterian Christianity. We've, we've mentioned in the past. The, um, now, Muhammad goes viral from this point in history. He converts people uh, he does so partly through persuasion, but honestly, mostly by the sword, which actually works pretty well. He, himself or? he and his entourage. He starts and he attracts a following and he assembles an army. Uh, you remember Agdin Nash teaches candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. Okay, so, uh, you know, certain things, you know, persuasion's nice, but the sword, would you like to convert to Islam? Yes, thank you very much, like sir. He converted like a whole Arabian area. As we said, it spread like wildfire. It was spread overnight, and I tried to give the background before you came in the class. I described the background um, in the various empires, the the, destru- the uh, imploding Byzantium Empire of, of Byzantium, the Persian Sassanids, and the others. It's like the world was waiting for them. Muhammad found a waiting, expectant world, and one very receptive to his message. And again, when you, it's like the carrot and the stick. You got the people looking for an answer. Muhammad carrying his his uh, intimidating sword, and uh, the the what followed then was a overnight sensation. Um, in the next decades, much of the Mediterranean Mediterranean basin and much of what was considered the central. Uh, civilized world, because remember Europe is still stuck in the Dark Ages and um, where most of civilization is focused, uh, where activity is focused, uh, trade centers and such, um, most of that becomes Muslim. The term Muslim is means in Arabic submissive. You've submitted to the authority of Allah. Um, it's one of the reasons that in our, our own classical sources you find Jews not really referring to the religion as Islam per se, it's a little bit too respectful. Um, what one finds the term that say the Rambam or the Ran and others, other Rishonim use, they call it the Dat Shal Yishma'elim, the religion of the Ismailites. 
Um, they refer to Muhammad also not as a prophet Muhammad, but rather uh, the more accurate description. They call him Hamishugashela Yishmaelim. That's what they call him. I make it up, and it's not inaccurate. He was um, he was crazed in many of his practices. Uh, the crazy man of the of the, of the Ismailites. Um, in 628, Muhammad returns to Mecca. And actually, I'm, I'm, I'm abbreviating it. He went and came and went a couple of times, and there's negotiation. You remember back in Mecca, is still ruled by his own clan, by the Quraysh clan, who do not like him, and he do not want him back. But now he's coming with a large army, and they're afraid of him. And so they um, sign a pact. Uh, they, they feel that they can't keep him out without, without risking war, so they agree to letting Muhammad enter, re-enter Mecca on condition, and the name of this treaty is called the Ahad Hudabiyah Treaty in Mecca, in which um, they agree to allow Muhammad and his troops to come into Mecca, and he agrees that he will not preach, he will not proselytize, and he will not convert people for 10 years. And... Um, in 630, he completely broke every one of the promises. Not for the first time we saw that. That was with his first wife. Uh, but he leads the, what's called the bloodless conquest of Mecca. Kills off all of the, uh, all of the former Quraysh opponents of his. Um, that's how bloodless it was. And, um, but dies two years later. Muhammad died in 632. Um, by sword. The way he lived. Uh, now... This represents a bit of a problem. This agreement, this treaty, the al Akharudabiya or the uh, the Banu Quraysh, what they call it, Banu Quraysh, the Bnei Quraysh, the children of the Quraysh clan treaty that Muhammad signed, is kind of a problem for them. I mean, remember, Islam is has a lot in common with Torah. They pre, they, they 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 are what Rambam says, genuinely monotheistic in a way that Christianity most certainly is not. Uh, and we're going to see a lot of lot of parallels between Islam and Judaism, but you know how do you reconcile a lying, unreliable, not a prophet, the prophet, the only prophet that you can count on, and they convert this into a religious principle that has that becomes a powerful precedent. They refer to it in these terms as Banu Quraysh, as um, when it comes to pagans, agreements are not binding. And they will use that again, repeatedly. Uh, in the modern period, infamously, on May 10th, 1994, Yasser Arafat, who was the uh, leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, at that point it had, become, it, had become, it had become the Palestinian Authority because it was the year after he had signed the Oslo Accords, uh, which was the first accords that were supposed to turn into a, a long-lasting peace treaty with Israel, Never worked out that way. We'll, we'll get to the modern day. We'll talk about Oslo Accords. But Arafat is speaking in a mosque in Johannesburg, South Africa. And he's being called a traitor. How dare you sign any peace accords with, uh, with the Jewish people, our enemies. And not realizing that he is being videoed or recorded, um, Arafat winks at his, at, at his audience and says, Banu Quraysh. He says the words, he says, it's fine. These are people with pagans. We don't have to. Uh, we don't have to keep our word, just like our great prophet and leader Muhammad didn't keep his words. Uh, it's today. It's the West Bank. Tomorrow, it's Tel Aviv. Arafat assured his constituents, um, which has been more or less consistently their uh, their 
pattern, and that, that idea had been repeated, and he, that was not the last time he was caught in videotape saying these ideas. It's something to understand that's in the, it's in the religious outlook. It dates back to Muhammad himself, this, uh, this Ahad Banu, Ahad Banu Quraysh um, business, and it's one of the reasons one can understand that Jews are a little bit wary about making long-lasting peace treaties with Arabs. How, how, how much can you trust that piece of paper? Not, not much if this is a major religious tenet. Now, like the Christians, Muslims are an exclusive religion. There's salvation if you're Muslim, and good luck if you're not. By the way, Arafat added a chiddish. You realize, I didn't say this, but let me spell it out. Um, in classic Islam, you can lie to pagans. Pagans are deplorable. Pagans have to be killed. They are idolatrous. So you can lie to them, you can do anything with pagans. Arafat applies this now to the Jewish people, and then they also apply it to the Christian West. Um, that's a chiddish. That's never been done before. Remember, the Jewish people, we were second-class citizens, but not somebody you could lie to reasonably. But okay, that, that you can change the rules as you're, as you're going along. Um, the Muslims understand that you will be saved if you believe in Muhammad, if you believe in, if you believe in the teachings of Muhammad about Allah. Um, we Jews, we've mentioned before, are the only non-exclusive system, meaning you could be a righteous non-Jew and get Olam Haba. Um, we realize that through history, the Jews often have the hardest time under so-called monotheistic regimes. When they're pagan, sometimes they're actually much better to us. They leave us alone. But it's specifically under the Christians or under the Muslims that we suffered terribly. And we'll see, and certainly more so under the Christians than under the Muslims, but the Muslims were not exactly our friends either. Golda Meir once said this. She said, uh, the Muslims, we will have peace when the Muslims love their children more than they hate the Jews. She was known for some good one-liners. Now, what are the major pillars of Islam? In Sunni Islam, at least, which is the, which is the main, largest... Islam, uh, and think about them in parallel to Judaism, the major one is, is um, Ashada, Ashida, uh, testimony. Allah is one. That's what they scream from the, uh, from the, from the minarets uh, five times a day, really loud. In recent years, the, uh, the volume has been amped up. Um, that's parallel to our first commandment, Ani Hashem, Anochi Hashem. Um, they have the mitzvah of, do you know this? What are the, what are the other four? There's Salat, which is Sali, prayer. Sali, like Salyan, we have in the Aramaic expression, a prayer five times a day. There is there's Tzedakah, they have to give Tzedakah. There's Saum, Som, fast. Ramadan, 40 days of Ramadan. And then finally there's Chaj, like you said, which parallels the Hebrew word of Chag. Chaj is Chag, Chag where we on Pesach, Shavuos and, and Sukkot we make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem so they convert that to the Chaj. Once in the lifetime every male and female Muslim has to visit Mecca to go and circle the Kaaba stone. That's very brief. I could go much more and I could elaborate on, on Islamic religion but that's not our, that's beyond our, uh, our scope here. Yes, brief. Uh, it was a pagan stone that they that they got they, they managed to rid it of any pagan connotation and upgrade it and it became there what you do what you do in Mecca meaning it, it it symbolizes the purging of the world of pagan belief and the, and the new belief in, in, in Allah 
Uh, after Muhammad died, there are four initial caliphs. The word caliph, like the Hebrew word khalif, lahachlif, means replacement. They are seen as replacements for the original prophet. Never, nobody could replace the prophet, but they come in instead. Um, they eventually will conquer, one of them conquers Eretz Israel and much of the world in 638. Uh, there's a lot of bloodshed, there are different dynasties. Um, Sunni and Shia split, there's tremendous argument over who assumes religious authority. Was it the children of, uh, really the grandchildren of Muhammad through, through, um, through his daughter Fatimid who is married to Ali? You get the names Muhammad and Ali there. Uh, they would be they they're, they're very important names. And Ali falls, and uh, that's where the whole Sunni revolution takes over. The first dynasty in Eretz Israel is the Umayyad dynasty, replaced by the Abbasids later on. Um, in any case, they conquer Eretz Israel. It's in 691 under the Umayyads, under the Sunni Umayyads, that Abdul Malik builds the Dome of the Rock in the place where the temple stood. That what's today a golden dome through most of his most of his he was not golden. Uh, his son, remember his name? Walid ibn Abdul Malik. Love saying that. Uh, I take particular pleasure in saying that he builds the Al Aqsa Mosque on the southern area of the Temple Mount, that grayish blackish dome in the year seven oh five. And what material is the, the dome? Uh, today? No, no, oh, the original? It's gold plated. Yeah, I think it's iron. I mean, is there any significance? Nah. No, and you'll hear about it. Let me, let me say my little bit here. Again, this is really a condensation. There's much, much more one can say about all of this. Now, what are they doing in Jerusalem? The name Jerusalem appears in the Quran exactly how many times? Zero. Yerushalayim, or what they call it, Al Quds. Never once in the Quran. So why do they want Jerusalem? Their holy places are Mecca and Medina, as they've stated. So some theorize, in, answering the, in addressing this question, some say that the caliphate were jealous of the Jews and the Christians for their spiritual rootedness. Because the, the, the Muslims were you know, all over the world. In Mecca there was the stone, but what did they really have? But meanwhile, look at the Jews. With their, with their tenacious uh, attachment, spiritual, emotional attachment to Jerusalem. Look at the Christians who followed suit after the Jews. What do they know that we don't know? And they looked at this, they looked at this, uh, this icon, Jerusalem, and they all develop a spiritual yearning for it. Again, as supersessionists, if this is the mentality, and it, it is, these earlier religions, they're your starting point. Therefore, if it's holy to the Jews and the Christians, it's holy to us. It's ours. So if Jerusalem is an icon for the Jews, well, then it must have significance in Islam. And later, Muslim theologians will develop, and, and with some historical retrospect, they'll, uh, they'll be able to put in a section of the Quran that doesn't refer to Jerusalem and say that the night journey of Muhammad, where he ascends to heaven, took place... Right, Al Barak, exactly where where he ascends from Al Aqsa, the edge, from the area where the dome of where the uh, where the uh, Al Aqsa Mosque is in the southern point. That's where his night journey must have taken place. But that's a later uh, addition, a later way of trying to rationalize and explain some connection to Jerusalem that doesn't really inherently exist. 
and they've superseded the Jews. So de facto, in the 20th century, we're going to see this, that the Grand Mufti will, for the first time in history, tell, tell the Muslim world that the Western Wall is significant, is a significant, iconic place in Islam. It never was, and suddenly it became that because when there was a political expedient, when there was a reason to politically attach, what's the political reason? Well, the Jews want it. So the Jews want it, but we're the real Jews today, is the mentality, well, then it's ours. Um, I, I think it's terribly important to understand these things. Because it's not, um, this is descriptive. It's not meant, I'm not, meant, I'm not going on any diatribe against Islam in general, but if you understand what informs their thinking. Um, it's not just sheer nastiness. It's not just tribal, oh, this is yours, we're going to take it from you. It really comes from this, this sense of, um, of uh, this is ours. We deserve this. We're the new Jews. I, if you want to call that entitlement, it's entitlement. Um, but but that's, a, that's what they feed. Much later, Jerusalem becomes central. Uh, we're not going to hear the Muslims going after Jerusalem for much of this period of the Sabarayim, Gaonim, into the Rishonim, because the Jews weren't there. The Christian world didn't, were, was dormant back in Europe. And so who cares about Jerusalem? Only it'll start to become important when, for the first time for the Muslims, only around the time of the uh, before the Crusader world rises up, and suddenly there's a, there's a, there's an interest in the Christian world with 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 uh, redeeming the Holy Land from the infidel. Suddenly the Muslims get a newfound religious attachment to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem to them they called Ilia, Ilia, based on the Roman term Elia Capitolina. The Temple Mount is referred to as Al Haram Ash Sharif. Um, the city is also sometimes referred to as Al-Quds, which is the holy place. Um, here's an interesting historical factoid. Jerusalem is never an Arabic capital. What? Jerusalem will never serve as a capital of any Muslim regime. There were several dynasties that ruled this part of town. Uh, during this period, we're about to go into the early Muslim period in Eretz Yisrael. Um, again, I mentioned the Umayyads, followed by the Abbasids. Uh, gonna, there's going to be the Fatimids, and there's going to be later on, the, there's going to be Salah Adin and his Ayyubid clans, and then later the Mamluks. It is never, and then the Ottomans eventually, it will, under any of those regimes, it will never be a capital, never a central place, whereas under the Crusaders, uh, certainly under the Jews, it's the capital. There's nothing holier than Jerusalem. And even under the Christians, um, the Crusaders, and later the British, it will serve as a central, you know, the British mandate, Jerusalem was the capital of British mandate Palestine. Yeah. Uh, so where was, uh, where was Saladin? Uh, where was his? Uh, you're ahead of me now. Uh, I, I, I mean, I mentioned that just to where, illustrate the point. Where's his Cairo. Oh, okay. Cairo was the center. And we're going to see the um, Umayyads are based in Damascus. The Abbasids are going to be based in Baghdad. Almost anywhere but Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will figure. It'll be part of the narrative, but not central. Now, what is the Jewish view? Of, we've talked about the Muslim view of Islam of, of, of the Jews. What, are the, what is the Jewish view of Islam of the Dat Shalishmaelim? The Rambam, who is authoritative, meaning the halacha follows the Rambam. You can look this up, for example, in the question of um, what means, what makes a Kohen unfit to dochen to bless the Jews. One of the examples is if he accepts another religion such as Islam, and there the Mishnaburah cites the Magin Abraham, who cites the Rambam, saying that we hold that Islam is not idolatrous. And even so, a Kohen who, um, who accepts it as a religious way of life is puzzled, is, is, is disqualified for dochening and, uh, um, and blessing Jews. 
Um, so he says, he says it's not idolatrous, even though he calls Muhammad the Meshuga. Uh, Muhammad was not just Meshugana, he was also profligate. He had 19 wives, 13 concubines by his death. Um, okay, Shlomo HaMelech he wasn't, but still. Uh, Rambam interest, had some interesting points though. Even though it's not idolatry, and Rambam Paskin's that Christianity is certifiable idolatry, and we don't Paskin like Rambam at that point, uh, we, we go with a slightly toned down view of the, of the Tosfos, that it's Shituf, uh, but this is not a discussion of Christianity. But, I, but the Rambam has some complex things to say. He says, on one point, for example, Christianity is better than Islam. He says, one can teach the Tanakh to a Christian. You're not allowed to teach a Muslim. Why? He explains, Christians, at le- and I said this before if you caught it, Christians at least believe that the Tanakh, that the Tanakh is the divine. The Old Testament comes from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, comes from Hashem. The Muslims claim that it's a corruption of the Quran. So they don't even take it that seriously. I mean, they take it seriously, but to a limit. They don't see it as coming directly from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. So for that reason, Rambam says you can't teach them the Tanakh. Usually they're not asking anyway, so don't worry about it. Um, he says it's easier for a Christian to realize the errors of his religion than it is for a Muslim. But then he points out, and I'm going to quote the Rambam in the Igeris Teman, he says the Muslims are not Ovdeh Vodazara. They don't worship idolatry. In fact, every element of pagan religion has been purged from their hearts. They acknowledge that Hashem is one. Okay, they call him Allah, but they, they, Hashem is one. Um, he says, it's true. They lie about us. The Rambam points out they falsely attribute us to the statement that Hashem has a son. Who are they confusing with us? Christians. Right? They say the Jews also know, have some kind of notion where God has a son. That is not our idea. And certainly it's not a Muslim idea either. It's a, it's, it's a Christian idea. Um, and he said that, uh, the Rambam says, okay, so they lie about us. That's no reason for us to lie about them and say that they're idolaters. And then he ends his discussion on an on a, on a, on a interesting point. He says, however, they commit other errors, which I'm afraid to write about. And you wonder what he's not writing about. It, it's, these are tricky times. The Rambam's writing in the 12th century. The Muslim rule, the Muslim world is very, very powerful, and they, they took recriminations, and if French cartoonists are understandably afraid for their lives, if they draw a caricature of Mohammed, uh, uh, Rambam, writing in the 12th century, had an understandable, similar fear in writing about certain aspects of Islam, and so he didn't. Um, not everybody goes with the Rambam for the record. The Ran, at least one of the Rans, there seems to be a contradiction, although it may be two different people with the same uh, abbreviated name. Uh, Rabbeinu Nisim, in his commentary, in his Chidushim on Sanhedrin, paskins that Islam is idolatrous, and there are a minority of poskim who agree with this. It's Tzeliezer held this way. The, um, uh, there are others who hold this way. The, uh, which Rebbe? Tip of my tongue. It, there, there are people who don't. There, there were, there were poskim. The Tzitzel Eliezer never went into the went into um, the Mars Machpelah in Hebron because the structure on top is a Mameluk mosque, and so they wouldn't enter there. Um, but uh, that's the run. Um, the Radbaz and the Ritva have something of a m- middle view on the subject. Uh, they say, on the one hand, it's not idolatry. They agree with the Rambam on that point. But they disagree on the following. 
if somebody were to go over Chas Shalom, but it's happened many times, even in the modern era it happens, that they say to a Jew, convert or die, like the, like the ISIS is doing these days, convert or die. So, and I think Satlov was a religious Jew also, the, the, one, of, one of the journalists that was murdered by, the, by ISIS earlier this year. What's that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it was religious either. He wore a kippah. There were pictures of him wearing a kippah in another, another phase in life. He hid his Jewish identity then and there. But in any case, the, um, the Ritva and the Radba and, and the Ralbag, excuse me, the Radbaz, Paskin, that um, if, they, if it comes down to life or death, they say, Yaharik Valyavo, our Jew has to die and not convert to Islam because even though it's not idolatrous, converting to Islam is symbolic like the Gemara says, like tying the shoelace in such a way where you're basically uh, repudiating Judaism. By de facto, the fact that you're accepting this other religion is to say that you don't embrace Judaism anymore, and they poskin that it's, it's something that a person has to die for. Uh, and, and, and it seems that other, other poskim agree with that, that, uh, that psak and halacha. Uh, they consider this is heresy, even if, even if it's um, you know, just a, a manifestation of denial. Um, I want to just mention briefly, Islam today one thinks of because of the last 500 years ago or so, Islam sort of fell into, um, they, they were sort of stultified, they, they, they fell into a regressive period where there was not much productivity and as the western world rose up during the renaissance and afterwards and the whole enlightenment happened and the industrial revolution, so Islam people perceive as backwards. You have to realize um, this period, I'm not going to focus on this, but it's a bit of a backdrop. This period is a period where Islam flourishes in the world, and uh, not only do they conquer the world, and much of the world becomes monotheist under them, um, but also the, they are the cutting edge of cultural development. And I'll use the follow. I'll just illustrate with the following. Um, Islam, the Muslims, and the Muslim culture will develop literature in a way that's deeply influential around the world and particularly on the Jewish people as well. Uh, they celebrated poetry, writing in general as an art, and their poetry influenced Jewish, Jewish paitanim, piyutim, um, and in fact many, and we're going to talk about this, this becomes a major issue for the Rishonim, much of our um, much of our tradition actually is based on a Muslim influence when we sing Zmiros on Shabbos. Almost every one of these Zmiros that we sing were written by Jewish poets, Paitanim, influenced by the Muslim tradition. I'll explain. You'll see how this, is, how this comes about. And the Jews themselves are at odds over that. Neim Shimchen Velo Yushbas Menachem, the great uh, Hebrew grammarian, argued against the author of Dror Yikra, Dunash ben Labrat. Um, his name is encrypted in the, in the first stanza of each of the, of the lines. He says, you cannot write that. That's not Lashon HaKodesh. That's not the whole language. It's Arabic. Ne'im, Shimchem, is an Arabic phrase. They're both Semitic languages, so they're similar. The proper Hebrew would have been No'im, Shimchem. Menachem corrected Dunash. So we'll see their, their immense influence uh, on the Jewish world, and that's going to unfold in the, in the coming, in the coming uh, classes. Um, the idea of inserting your name in an acrostic. If you look at most Zmiros, for example, you'll see the author has the first letter of his name in each stanza of the song. And that's an Arabic style. They have word games that the Jews would use and other things. 
Um, Muslims were deeply philosophical. We've talked a little bit about philosophy. We talked about the Greek world. Philosophy is the field where you ask deep questions that can take you nowhere because the mind is ultimately limited. But the world, once upon a time before the modern uh, industrial revolution, um, most of the world was consumed with uh, with trying to understand why, and it was a potential black hole that you could never get out of, but the Muslims fell into that black hole. And they have, they have elaborate, immense philosophies that also will find the Jews, especially the Jews of Spain, will get in, uh, completely engrossed in, and Jewish philosophers will rise up too, because the, the culture is such a dominant culture, they have to speak the language of their people for Kiruv purposes. So the first major Jewish philosopher is Rav Sadi Gaon, the Rambam dabbles heavily in philosophy, and he knows all the Muslim philosophies. They, they play a central role, for example, in the middle section of his Mordevuchim, his Guide to the Perplexed. We'll see now philosophy under Muslim influence will, 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 uh, become, an, will become part of our own story. Um, Muslims take the field of mathematics to a whole new level. Um, they invent numerology. One, two, three, four, five are all Arabic numbers. And zero. Zero is, a whole, is another innovation. Can you, uh, they also logically then invade, invent higher math like algebra, it, right? And arithmetic. Can you imagine doing algebra? Can you imagine doing advanced calculus with Roman numerals? Wait, I thought that, oh, I thought God. that algebra, algebra was invented by, by not the Arabs. I thought it was invented by the no, no, geometry is from the Greeks. But algebra and applied math is only possible when you have a complex numerical system like the Muslims brought the world. Now, not only do you have numbers and therefore advanced math, but you have other fields made now possible, complex navigation. When you have a, a way of dealing with numbers, that leads the way to navigation. There is a theory that long before Marco Polo, Marco, long before Christopher Columbus, that the, it was the a Muslim world that actually navigated the world possibly as early as the 8th or 9th century and sailed to the Americas. There is such a theory that doesn't, can't be proved, but also um, geography, charting the world and mapping the world, again, is made possible with this complex number system. Um, finally, the um, Arab world brought, the, brought, and most of this is happening in, this, in the Iberian Peninsula, Peninsula, what we call Spain, the Arab world um, brings music. Do you know that most musical notes and symbols like treble and bass all were developed under the and instruments, and instruments under the Arab pianos and cellos and whatnot, string instruments and, and what come from, come from the Arab cultures. So um, they will take the world and, and several notches down the, down the line in terms, of, in terms of all these developments. Now, Islam clearly is, at, just as they're emerging as the dominant world culture, and I'm, just, I'm talking in big picture, talking the next several centuries, the whole period of the Sabarim and the Gaonim, and as they're rising, the Christian world is receding into these long, dark ages. Uh, the Christian world are demagogues, they're not nice, they're not cultured. Um, the Byzantines, we know already, tried to empty the land of Israel of the Jews. Um, when the Muslims come and conquer Eretz Yisrael, uh, it's a bomb, it's a pleasure, compared to the previous regime that was here. They come in, um, well, the post-Hijra period, after 622, 
Um, there's a constitution written called the Constitution of Medina that allows Jews to profess their religion independently of Muslims. That's huge. Now, the Christian world was not that tolerant. And Jews could be Jews. And it's, it's unusual in all of history that the Jews could actually say, yeah, I'm Jewish. Maybe we, we uh, modern Americans and Canadians take such a thing for granted, but this is unusual. Um, the initial conquest in 638, there was Rav Yitzchak Gaon, who was in Tiberia at the time, and he, in 640, was honored and elevated by the Caliph Ali, uh, Muhammad's son-in-law. Um, so, you know, Jews were given a certain position of, okay, they're not central, they're Dima, but they were honored and, and accepted for what they were. We know that for about 500 years, under the Romans and the Byzantines, Jews were mostly forbidden from even entering Yerushalayim. And Omar, when he comes and conquers Jerusalem, that caliph in 638, initially signed a letter and agreed with the patriarch, the Christian patriarch, that he would continue that policy. No Jews. Uh, Jerusalem would remain, to use a Nazi word, Judenrein. Um, but the Jews are kind of, we're a tenacious bunch. Have you noticed that about us? And they petition, and they're effective. And they get, they get a petition signed, and they convince Omar to allow 200 Jews to settle in Yerushalayim. And he agrees. And so for the first time in centuries, a tiny Jewish community is, is, set, is, is established, 70 families. Later, others join. There's a proper kahila. This community will be persecuted, and there'll be massacres, but it lasts. It lasts for centuries. Where is this community? In, in, in Yerushalayim. Is it still No. No, no, no. It came and went. But there was a period under the early, early Arabs that it existed, and that's important to know. Where did Yerushalayim have been? Um, around, to the best of our knowledge, right around the Temple Mount. Um, <clears throat> the Umayyads are the first dynasty. I've mentioned them a few times today. They're, again, their base is in Damascus. They're, they enjoy 90 years of relative stability. When the earthquake demolishes much of the Middle East in 749, um, that also spells the end of the Umayyads, at least in Eretz Yisrael, the, the last one flees to Spain. Um, and the, the new rulers are called the Abbasids, who are based in Baghdad, and they invade in 754 and will be dominant for centuries. And it's the Abbasids who write, the, the Abbasids produce a, a 1001 Arabian Nights and other, and other classics of, uh, of is, uh, Arabic culture and literature and so on. Um, another aspect of the Muslim Empire, since you got now the world again, for the first time since the big days of the Roman Empire, the world is an empire. And the Muslims, among other achievements, they build a complex system of roads. That's really good for the Jews. We like roads uh, and channels. Um, that makes us able to travel more and therefore communicate better and have more unity. And we find, for example, some of the more isolated Jewish diasporas start asking more shilas to the center of Jewish life, which remains in Babel and Surah and Pumbadisa. We have more shilas coming in this period that are enabled because Jewish Jews are traveling more, doing business more around the world, and there's a greater sense of cohesiveness in Klal Yisrael that comes, comes about because of the Muslim revolution. Um, but it's not all rosy. During the initial Muslim conquest, both Jews and Christians are expelled from the Arabian Peninsula, the home of Muhammad. Uh, that's called the Holy Land of the Hijaz. 
and they wanted to keep it, as they like to call it, ethnically pure. So at least that region, Jews are not allowed. That's okay, we don't need to be there either. Uh, thanks very much. Um, the only exception was this, the port of Jeddah. Jews were allowed to be on the Red Sea port. Um, there's a, 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 there is some persecution. There's a, what's called Tanai Omar, which is a series of decrees written by Omar II Ben Abdul Aziz. And um, here are some interesting restrictions that we find out of the Muslims. They insist that shuls, if they're built, have to be lower than mosques. And one goes around, especially the Sephardi Jewish world that were living in Muslim ruled land, they always built their shuls low. Uh, they want to make no, nobody should be uh, somebody should make a mistake which religion was the dominant religion according to the Muslims um, and they have an interesting innovation they force Jews and Christians and Shomroni and the Kutim also to wear special clothes as a sign of their secondary uh, status that sounds very hold on for the first time right for the first time in history this is where we find it they force Jews what was the Jewish costume a yellow triangle that's where it comes from. Triangle, not a Jewish star, a triangle. And triangular caps that look like dunce caps that actually you see, it's called a Kovat temple. See like the old image of the, of the secular kibbutznik wearing a, a dunce cap? That's, that's what one finds and you can trace it back. It's the basis for later Nazi decrees and other decrees, but it dates back to the early Muslim period. It's to reinforce their lowly status as Dima. Um, there's also a very heavy farm tax. Most of our rulers didn't uh, miss an opportunity to tax us heavily. Um, that every non-Muslim had to pay. I mean, part of it was pretty obvious. They wanted everybody to convert. Like the Christian world, the Muslims are proselytizing and they want everybody's, everybody to convert. And there are a lot of social um, pressures, including you have to pay a lot of money to, to remain non-Muslim. Um, especially on the farm with agricultural work. And so... What we find now at this point is a pretty, pretty significant shift. Jews throughout the Talmudic period are agriculturalists. They work the land. They farm the land. And that's going to end. As a, as a, a people, we're gonna, for, for centuries, until the modern era, the Jews are going to leave the land because the taxes made it impossible. Um, you remember that the Yarche Kala used to be scheduled when? Twice a year during Elul and Adar because those were the harvest seasons. Those are perfect time of year for farmers to come and assemble at a, at, a, at a Torah convention. Now Jews are going to leave the farm and go into mercantile trades, which is going to persist till the modern era too. They're going to be entrepreneurs, tax collectors, traders. Um, in the ninth century, for example, Rav Moshe Gaon writes, quote, Here in Bavo, most Jews don't own land. Um, now, Okay, so we went to international trade, but that's good. That works well. We're uniquely suited in the world for international trade. Think about it. Now the Jews are increasingly scattered. You got family members up in the British Isles, over in the Iberian Peninsula, in, in, the, in the whole area of the Mugrab in Northern Africa, and um, we can connect to one another. We have a common language. You can go to different parts of the world where different dialects are spoken, but you can always converse in Lashon HaKodesh. Uh, you have national ties, you got loyalties. You're Jewish, I'm Jewish, come for Shabbos. Um, the Jews will develop, this is debatable whether they were the first to do this, but they certainly developed the rudiments of modern financial documents. Um, the whole idea of checks. If you write a check, that means you gotta trust me that there's money in the bank, no? Well, if I'm a Jew and I'm writing you a check, a piece of paper, a document saying I owe you money, you're gonna trust me because I'm Jewish. And Kol Yisrael Raven said is that we're all in this together. So they start writing checks. 
their letters of credit, trade bills, and other documents, making coinage less necessary. Coins are a pain, they weigh, weigh you down. You have to carry heavy coins. If you write it on a piece of paper, it's much more convenient for business. So they can do this, and increasingly one finds Jews go into trade. Uh, of course, it all requires lots of trust. And as we said, the Jews do indeed trust one another. Um, tomorrow, Be'ezrash Hashem, we're going to begin formally the Gaonic period. And I've got, a, um, I've got quite a story to tell you about one of the, uh, I mean, it's, it's legendary, about one of the, uh, the most famous of all the Reish Galusas that existed. Okay, so that's, that's tomorrow.